Welcome back to Her Hustle with your hosts, Chloe and Mimi. We interview successful female and non-binary entrepreneurs about their businesses and how they got from college to where they are today. Whether you have a side hustle or want to own your own company, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and are eager to learn, this podcast is for you. Let's get going. All right, everyone, welcome back to Her Hustle. Today, we are delighted to welcome Helen Lee and Rachel Lee, twin sisters and two activists turned social entrepreneurs. Both Helen and Rachel spent a large portion of their life fighting for gender equality, specifically to eliminate the pink tax on feminine products. Throughout their work, they traveled across the nation, prepping for legislative hearings and interviewing for Teen Vogue at the steps of the Capitol building. The tax finally came to an end January this year, and these two changemakers moved right on to making their next impact in entrepreneurship. After graduating from UCLA, the twins co-founded Prism, a brand of bags that are beautiful and stylish on the outside and extremely durable. There is so much to learn from these women, and they serve as a model for the impact of combined activism and entrepreneurship. Alongside Prism, Helen works at Snapchat and Rachel in nonprofit and business consulting. You guys are our first duo guests, and we are so excited. Welcome. Thank you so much. We're both super excited to be here. Okay, awesome. So it really sounds like from a very young age, you've both been entrepreneurial. Could you share more about your relationship as sisters and how this interest got started? Yeah, absolutely. So our relationship as sisters, uh, we played together a lot when we were young. So um, context here is super, super important. So for starters, we both immigrated from South Korea when we were young, and we both didn't grow up with a whole lot. So we were each other's not only support system, but really like partners in crime and like best friends and all of that rolled into one. And also when we would play, starting when we were young, um, we would really confide in each other and know that anything is possible because we very much have like a very yes and sort of relationship. So we both had really large imaginations. So as kids, uh, we do everything together, but we also did everything from like drawing and creating our own fashion magazine where we were both editors in chief to playing pretend and making paper dolls and essentially making all the dolls we couldn't buy ourselves. So we basically dreamed really big and you know we allowed each other to really dream big really with, with the other. Thanks. Um, I want to really get into what inspired you both to fight against the sales tax on feminine products. Um, Tell us what that process was like and then maybe some advice for other young women that want to pursue social impact work. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked since for us, it was really when I think a spark of inspiration really hit something that we knew that was happening in the world. So for us at that stage in our lives, we were going shopping for necessities at Target. And, you know, as a household with two women going off to college, it was financially difficult for our family to figure out. And we did the thing where when we were at Target, we were itemizing our lists. And a specialty of mine is like making sure that we're paying the right amount for the right things and making sure and doing my due diligence. So when we were shopping, we realized that once we got the receipt, we were pouring through our items and we found that a pack of razors that we had grabbed for our dad, it said that it was tax exempt. Whereas like we were looking through our receipt when it came to our feminine hygiene products, our tampons and pads, and we saw that there was an included sales tax. Now that really got me thinking since I had read and heard about Canada and Australia's efforts Mm -hmm. to get rid of the pink tax in their respective countries. And we really sat down and we were asking ourselves, what is the importance of a sales tax and what causes items to be exempt? 
revamped, whereas some items are not. How do you talk about and rouse an audience around these taboo and uncomfortable matters? Yeah, so in our time, Rachel and I have definitely had so many difficult and different conversation. So first of all, I think kind of like bringing it back to when we started the movement is really, really important. So back in 2016, people didn't really know or understand the concept of the pink tax or even the tampon tax. So we've actually kind of at the core of it really learned to tease apart issues. And especially when you kind of think of things as in like a taboo nature, things become taboo when one they're really hard to talk about because they're like very heavily stigmatized or people should be ashamed of them or when it only impacts a certain marginalized community so we really had to learn how to work around first of all like the logic of the situation how to demonstrate inequality in a way that it doesn't only impact one subset of the population so for example how we kind of like went about doing that was after rachel and my war room, like war zone slash like policy war room that was our childhood bedroom kind of like converted into a research like type of like lab i guess um we essentially found that the tax code in particular in california tax code p425.0522 tattooed in my brain so essentially that exact tax code is the necessities to life clause so what that shows or what that says is certain things that are deemed a necessity by the eyes of the state are exempt from sales tax. And while we were pouring through that list, we had learned that, you know, things like lube or certain things that like we didn't necessarily think like had like hint, hint, like male like medication or very specific gendered medication. We didn't expect that to be on the list. So we were thinking about like, hey, like, how do we frame this as an issue? Because, you know, first we had to just kind of redefine what necessities meant. Like, what did, does a necessity mean? And really getting to the theoretical framework of how we can demonstrate how pads and tampons to women are actually a necessity. So that's actually the argument that was the most original argument that had actually been considered up until that time before people were dismissing it as a purely menstruation issue. And that's actually the reason that um, the assembly a member, assembly member Garcia actually recognized our petition and the original argument that was made. And that's how the partnership actually happened. So as a result of putting together more logical arguments and how we can better frame certain issues like this in a way that's not too personal to one's identity, we kind of got it to get a lot further than what it could have been. And just to add on a little bit about starting difficult conversations, especially with young boys, like we realized that, you know, more people are receptive to starting conversations if they relate to it. So I think that the most difficult part of our activism journey is really being able to talk to, you know, high school teachers and being able to like ask for opportunities so we could speak to especially a population that is just learning about you know the the female body but also like anatomy and such and being able to really frame the discussion and open that door i think which is the most challenging part of getting rid of the stigma but i feel like as activists that's kind of our i guess like call to action and starting those difficult conversations and even if it's hard or embarrassing to you it's the first time you do it, obviously, it's going to be challenging. But the more you do it, it becomes second nature. And it becomes more part of our dialogue, which is something that we very much encourage. That's awesome. Helen, I think what you said about breaking down the problem into digestible steps that and parts that kind of resonate with people makes so much sense. And then also what you said, Rachel, about the fact that you kind of just need to do it once and then do it again. And the more you do it, the easier it gets to talk about and then you make it more normalized. So that's what you're doing as activists. You're 
we're kind of taking back that taboo thing and making it real. So that's awesome. Um, I'd like to hear, because you were doing all of this during college life, right? At, you were both at UCLA. You were both majoring in super cool interdisciplinary stuff. Um, but I'd love if you guys could tell us briefly about your college experience and how you balance this activism traveling around the state with starting your own business and all the academics that you were doing. <laughs> Did we really balance it, Ellen? I feel like we really tried, but definitely with college, it's definitely a very busy time in people's lives. So it was very important for us to try and balance all of the things that we had going on since we're the types of people that really love to learn by doing and we love keeping very active. So it was definitely figuring out what our priorities were and figuring out like if this was something that I was truly passionate about to be spending time that I could be doing something else for into really pouring it into a passion project. Exactly. So I actually remember like one time um, when we would be making these legislative trips back and forth because we were on such a budget, we actually only took nine hour bus rides and train rides, which, you know, often makes things a lot worse or the circumstances are a lot more difficult. But I remember there was one time we were taking like a very like red eye type of um, bus ride back home. And I was studying for a final th- the for like later on that day. So essentially we were just up all night on the bus <laughs> for a final that I eventually only barely like passed or just barely managed to scrape by. So it's a lot about kind of recognizing where your priorities lie and like whether things really matter, et cetera. But truly like the balance was definitely a challenge. Yeah, but lastly, it was just really helping each other because I remember on that same bus ride, Helen and I like really collaborated on the statement that we were giving for the legislative hearing for the hearing of the bill. So it was just like really being able to help each other out in that difficult situation and having each other to rely on has been such a rock for both of us. Mm -hmm. Wow. And especially with like all the in-person work you were doing, I feel like that is more experience than someone who is studying Gov or politics, like more experience than they'd ever get like after all. Um, you can say that you graduated with degrees in that as well. Seriously. It must have just, just been nice to have each other throughout all of that. Like what you were doing was intimidating stuff, but you had someone by your side to go through with you. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as young women, it's definitely challenging navigating the world. So I think having someone else there that was experiencing something similar and really being able to help each other through that and really be able to visualize the end goal that we wanted to reach has been such an incredible opportunity, I think, for both of us. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, Okay, so let's talk conscious consumerism and your bags. How did the idea for PRISM arise? The idea for PRISM bags itself actually was a huge part of consciousness around how women travel, especially for you know women who are not only on a tight budget, but also women who are going out there and really trying to envision a change for the world. So through our activism and traveling, again, in those like nine hour bus rides from Los Angeles all the way to Sacramento, um, Rachel likes to put it very eloquently as we were carrying a door of the Explorer type backpack plus like a canvas bag with all of our like essentials for like we'd have like a protest sign in there we'd have like a bunch of other stuff that any of those activists would carry and then (laughs) right essentials right and then on top of that we would have to carry a Kate Spade bag bag because you know the governor can't know that you know we have like all sorts of other things you really just have to look put together so that's kind of a little bit of like the standard that a lot of women are often placed on especially in the professional world is that you have to kind of look like you have everything put together 
when in reality there's so many moving parts to just your journey and like who you are as an identity as a woman so we realized that you know we there was a better way to really remedy that one bag situation instead of carrying like seven different ones and as we kind of like explored identities outside of being an activist and especially working our way into the workplace we realized that this isn't just someone like an activist or like a, a social rights um like type of person would experience but really a lot of women in the workplace really face yeah and we definitely wanted to really infuse the spirit of a change maker and activism to the world of fashion and bringing a product to life that will make a difference on the individual scale for the lives of women but also in the larger scale of the fashion supply chain or the global supply chain. Jumping off of that, um, I'm super excited to hear more about your ethical commitments and values. You list them out on your website, and I think it's something super unique about your brand and honestly something that more brands should be doing. So please share with us about what those commitments are and why you chose them. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely feel that the social and sustainable piece is so core to our brand since honestly we feel that ethical and sustainable fashion should be accessible and that is the cornerstone of what prism was founded on so oftentimes brands that are committed to both values are priced as luxury items and helen and i know firsthand that if you're going to create change or carry the torch in a movement the solution needs to be accessible to more people since one person or just like the one percent can't create the whole change and that change can't only just be accessible by the people who can afford it so definitely our two biggest commitments socially are our environmental commitments that Helen could talk a little bit more about, as well as our social commitments of wanting to produce everything ethically and empower women. Yeah, that's right. I think Rachel put that well. Like, obviously, you can very much see like the activist like spirit within the bag brand, which I don't think that a lot of fashion brands do enough of. So yeah, definitely. I would say that uh, we actually went through the whole process of actually custom engineering our own blend of vegan leather, because we realized that there's like this huge gap between the target sort of pleather that you would get on a budget and how pleather often gets like a really really bad rep because also it's not very environmentally sustainable and friendly because of the pollutants um, created when you're actually manufacturing or producing that type of leather and on the other hand obviously you get the luxury high-end leather that often gets burned every season especially if you don't sell them but also on top of that you know it, there, it creates a lot of pollutants just by you know using cowhide or raw leather so we realize that there is an in-between so we actually were able to do our own custom blend of a, what's a REACH certified um, blend. So REACH certified is the fact that when it's produced, you actually capture the pollutants. We capture like 99% of them and we're able to put it back into when we produce it. And on top of that, we were able to make the backing biodegradable. So fun fact is that our leather is actually biodegradable. It's just only under the right circumstances, but it will last us for about 20 years. So those social commitments are something that we very deeply care about. That's all so cool. I was hoping you guys could address the question in that what advice do you have for people who are interested in the apparel let's say bag industry but don't have any prior experience or background in it like how did you learn basically everything yeah and i think the biggest thing is that we are still in the process of learning since there's something new to learn every single day especially in this kind of industry but for us it has really been talking to the people that 
are very much in this industry and have a lot of work experience and experience creating different products and really being able to ask them to sort of pick their brain about what to do next or how they actually got started in the process of creating a product. But also at the same time, like Helen and I are like really big on listening to podcasts and also reading lots of books that really tell you how to detail and create the product from start to finish. So it's definitely been for us seeking out resources and being very active about learning and teaching ourselves the trade really. Amazing. So, okay, I have two questions for you guys that are kind of tied together. One, obviously jumping into a path like this, creating your own brand is scary and it's super exciting. And I obviously don't put it past you guys at all, but I'm curious like maybe what hesitancies you had in the beginning and why you chose to move forward anyways. And then I kind of want to know like what your day-to-day life is. Like you guys are balancing this and other careers. You're doing other things. So tell me a little bit about those hesitancies and then what your life is like now. Yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't, of course, like, you know, there are many factors into a journey, right? Like there are especially if you are a woman of color or someone who's a first generation, um, you know, entrepreneur or even a college student, which, you know, all of those identities were both what Rachel and I um, embodied. But I would say we definitely had a lot of hesitancies because especially if you're a really young fledgling brand, the way capitalism works is that there are a lot of different competitors out there who either on every whim might want to crush you or like, you know, definitely like it's a lot more intimidating to just get your brand started, especially because I think our economy is very much dominated and it's very obvious that it's dominated by a lot of really really large players who get a lot you know who um, sell more product and are able to stay in the industry so the longer you are in an industry the easier it gets to you know kind of thrive in that industry so I think that Rachel and I have also experienced a lot of like that imposter syndrome and like hesitancies have definitely been like you know we are often on a limited budget so especially without coming from a fashion background like is it really the right place for us and I guess my own answer to that and how I resolve that is knowing that you know we bring something else aside from just a bag to the table and what Rachel and I always talk about is how we're selling empowerment every time so we're, our true product isn't just a bag right especially with the experiences that we have and what we bring to the table we definitely recognize that you know empowerment is actually the core product and we want to make every user or every customer and really value that relationship and seeing how we can help somebody else in their journey Selling empowerment. I love that. <laughs> I just wrote it down too. Yeah. That's so cool. That was good. <laughs> I was hoping that you could both follow up and share with our listeners more about how you balance these two lives that you're living, working full time at your jobs, but then also working full time on Prism. Can you share what your day to day is like? For me, my day to day really varies since, you know, I would love to be doing, you know, Prism full time, but until then, both of us need to find our ways to be able to support the business. And definitely for me, like it really changes day by day since I feel like I have more of like a structured schedule. So from like, I would say like I work part time. So from I would say like around like nine to two, or it really depends per like Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and such too. Like I would be working pretty much like on my other um, job, which is like at a social impact consultancy. But also like, I feel like when it comes to like flexibility, like I have like a bit of a more flexible schedule. So I'm able to like meet with manufacturers that we have and take phone calls. And most of my day really consists of being the technical designer for Prism and being able to take all the research that we do and conduct since our users really come first for us and being able to turn that into, 
tangible designs that our manufacturers can make. And from that point on, I would say like, since we're all in different time zones, like I would be able to spend like the latter part of my day communicating with manufacturers and such as well. Yeah. And for me, I think my day looks definitely a little bit different from Rachel's. So I work a full time job um, at Snap. And basically what that entails is that, you know, for the very first part of my day, which is around like from nine to five. So I do work that nine to five grind. So I was able to kind of like work out a schedule where I would actually work Tuesday through Saturday. And that would give me one free day on Monday to work with Rachel and work with whatever other things that come up since a lot of business happens during the weekday. So my actual like, you know, prism work actually I take like the graveyard shift where I go from like 5 p.m. all the way down to like midnight. So the advantage of doing that is that Southeast Asian countries are actually just starting their business and their business working hours. So it just works out. And basically we both work essentially like two jobs. And I, I think that. one little advice that I have and like one little quirk that I do to really help someone who might be managing a similar thing or might be you know wondering how to kind of like go about that is like I actually have like three different email apps like entirely different apps. And what that does is that they're associated with different email addresses that I would have to be like on top of. So yeah, and that actually helps because like even the notification sounds different. So when I hear different notification, I kind of know exactly what's coming and it really allows me to separate my lives. And obviously there's some overlap, but I think Rachel and I both do a very good job of keeping our lives separate um, or like living almost like two different lives. And what that does, it, it helps us like give more structure to an environment, especially the startup environment that can be very, very uncertain a lot of times. Absolutely. And we like to say that every major decision that we make, we validate. And I think that's a part of entrepreneurship that Helen and I take really to heart. And we really want to build for the users. And we definitely know our target demographic. And we really try and go out there and talk to as many people as possible. And we always come up with like a different list of questions and we make it very research focused. So we keep it consistent and we try and keep it as reliable as possible as well. And especially when it comes to like a major, like possible turning point or something on a design, we'll be sure to like go out there, talk to people and ask them questions and see how we, how like the list of people that we've talked to have answered. And we really take that seriously when we create those decisions that can make or break a bag. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. During that, you mentioned user feedback. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you guys use user feedback? Obviously, you're all about empowerment. And I've also taken a look at your newsletter, Inspector, and that's amazing. So tell our listeners a little bit more about that and the work you're doing. Yeah, and exactly. Um, I think we really want to bring that like brains focus. So a lot of times fashion is just kind of done for just the what you see or like just kind of like done for just like the eye and I think that's like not necessarily true especially given that you know the women that we're really building for not only do we identify with them and really understand their struggles to heart but also um the fact that there are different needs that fashion just isn't accommodating or doing a good job at accommodating so really just understanding those two trends we know that we bring something really unique to the table and just really just acting on that has been something that um, has just kind of like brought us through I love how in so many of your answers as well you've really focused on that at the core you're empowering women you relate to all these issues and so I was wondering if you're comfortable could you share more about any specific challenges you may have faced as female founders and relatedly what are some Asian American stereotypes that you felt as though you needed to break in your career 
Yeah, so I'll definitely start with the first challenge uh, because I feel like you brought up two really important points that Helen and I really face on a day-to-day -day basis that we're yes. only really trying to figure out how to navigate. But yeah, definitely in the fashion industry and the product development aspect of things, looking young and feeling young um, has been a really tough um, obstacle to overcome since sometimes I feel like people don't take us seriously. Like, And for me, like honestly, like affirmations and being able to like really change the way I talk to myself has been really helpful in terms of like separating what I'm feeling in the current situation versus what I feel like are facts. And also I think when it comes to the Asian American stereotypes, um, the stereotype that Asian women are quiet and submissive and just like kind of go with the flow, even if it's harmful, has been such a harmful stereotype. And that's something that I feel like really is something that I challenge myself every day to break, especially when it comes to people who might have more power over me, over decisions that I might not be in control of but genuinely really going back to think about like how I could challenge different stereotypes, especially when it comes to situations where I don't feel super comfortable, but really being able to learn how to use my voice and speak up when things don't feel right. Yeah. Uh, similarly, um, I can't echo what Rachel uh, just said, like more than I already do, but I remember like Rachel and I were just kind of like ranting at business insider for, because they were like, Oh, what's like an imposter syndrome type of like, issue that you face, especially as an Asian American, you know, founder or like a co-founder um, or like a female founder. And I actually think I want to go a little bit deeper than that and talk a little bit about privilege, right? So I think that what privilege means, especially in the workspace and why visibility matters is extremely important, especially because a lot of the challenges that I face as a female and Asian American founder can be very much tied with visibility and, and also privilege. So you, we have to recognize that, especially in a space of business, that privilege exists when you are white, when you are male because you can look around you and think that you belong or you can look around you and not have to question whether what you're saying actually is making sense with other people. So, you know, women of color or someone from an underrepresented background receives a rejection on a, on a grant application. It's never just about the grant application. It's about like constantly existentially questioning whether you belong in that space or not. And I think that's something that Rachel and I were always thinking about is that like, why is it such that like our existence, especially in the business space, always feels so personal, even though there's so many decisions that a white male wouldn't take so personally. So that's something that I like that has really, really resonated with me. And like, like, I'd have to really question that thought because, you know, with every rejection, it's so easy as an underrepresented founder to question your place in that. And I think that's something that I was facing recently, too, and really understanding that like you shouldn't be questioning yourself like that because obviously you belong but it's really hard in the moment when you are looking around and everything is telling you that you don't belong in that space so i think just to kind of like think about it like i would say that not only imposter syndrome is an important um, facet but really thinking about like why privilege matters and really just going a step further and asking like those questions and challenging not only the people around you but yourself as well Thank you guys so much for sharing about that. It's just honestly quite encouraging the way that you're explaining it. And when I think about your experience with the pink tax, you guys created a space for yourself. You walked into rooms that you weren't meant to be in, right? And you demanded that people paid attention. So it's pretty awesome to see that even from a young age, like you guys are leaders in this and you're creating a path that people are going to definitely look up to and want to follow. So I think that's awesome. I think you guys are seriously, Mimi and I both like love what you do and think you're really killing it. So just a, like kudos to that. That really <laughs> means a lot. Thank you so much for saying yeah. that. That means 
so of much. Of course, <laughs> seriously. Um, and I think that, you know, you guys have had to teach yourself a lot through this journey. I mean, that's what being an entrepreneur is. It's learning as you go. So I'm curious, maybe what's one like business, quote unquote, business skill that you've picked up? And for someone that maybe doesn't have a ton of entrepreneurial experience, what do you recommend people learn when they're just starting out? I would actually say negotiating. So negotiating is actually so important and not in the sense where you might think of it, because obviously like negotiating skills can be applicable in so many different ways. So uh, for example, um, if you are a good negotiator and can also drive down your prices slash you know what you're worth, not only does that lead to more profit, but that also could translate into being a better pitcher when you are like pitching in front of a VC. So I would say that's the one thing. And of course, like sometimes that takes time because you know the key to negotiating, I think, is like own self-confidence and own self-worth. And that's why I think a lot of women have that challenge of like not knowing where to start, especially when it comes to negotiating. So I think self-worth and negotiating are really, really intricately tied, but that's definitely something I recommend um, all women start with. Yeah, and I definitely would echo that as well. And honestly, being used to, especially as an entrepreneur, it's so endemic that you understand that you may not have all the resources starting out. So genuinely trying to make the most of what you have. Like Helen and I always say that we would sometimes pretend to go in our car, especially for like an important meeting and just pretend that that's a boardroom, <laughs> even though we're like turning off the air conditioning, turning off the ignition and we're like, okay, we're in a quiet space now. So we just have to make the most of it. So genuinely being creative and gritty, I think is a skill that you can learn, especially if you're not necessarily comfortable in that environment, but really thinking about what you can do with the little that you have, I think is such an important skill, especially as a starting or early stage entrepreneur. Thank you. Um, just to touch on Helen's point about negotiation, I went to a talk the other day and someone said that you should always like double your ask of what you originally think you're worth. And I, I feel like it's so true because I was talking to my mom the other day and saying like, how much do you think I'm worth? And I kind of said like a salary amount that I get paid at school. And she went to the same talk and was like, double it. You know, a man would like definitely do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes. love what you guys are saying with that. That is so accurate. Well, with that, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners how you approach the funding journey for PRISM, especially in how, um, I guess, you pitched in front of VCs or even sourced those relationships from the beginning. Honestly, like if there was a TV show called Extreme Bootstrapping, we would absolutely be on it. Like, isn't that right? <laughs> right? Like, honestly, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, so if there are any listeners that know of those shows, like literally count us in. But <laughs> I, in all seriousness, I would say that definitely the funding journey, um, I think Rachel and I have a very, very strong point of view, especially on this. And Rachel can definitely kind of like expand on this. But I think bootstrapping is number one, not only a skill, but it also demonstrate like it demonstrates how dedicated you are to the product without even extra like you have to believe in your product first and i think that's why bootstrapping matters is because like you will take it to the ends of the earth to see the thing live and that's kind of what the essence of bootstrapping is so we've we've been again like working two jobs especially to kind of be able to fund this journey and get to as far as we can so a lot of entrepreneurship especially the funding journey is doing everything you can till you hit one milestone and hitting that milestone and being like how do i what do i have to do to get to the next milestone so definitely we have like a crowdfunding strategy 
coming up, but we definitely want to, you know, go to market and like also again, customer feedback is extremely important, but we know that the VC funding journey is always going to be out there for us. And we know that that's eventually something that we're going to be hitting, but that's not something we're in a rush to really jump into. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly uh, what's been said for us, it's been bootstrapping and figuring out, especially the next stage for us would be like crowdfunding and friends and family rounds. So we definitely want to make sure that we're scaling at the right speed since we definitely want to approach a VC or some sort of um, angel investor funding in the future. But we, we're very much waiting for the right time for that as well, since we're definitely growing this at a slower pace, especially since this is a product focused brand. So once we get that and once we hit our stride, that's definitely an avenue that we would love to take. Amazing. Thank you for sharing about that. I think one of the biggest like question marks above my head is always funding and how starting out people are able to do that. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Okay, this is our last question before we dive into our like uh, quick speed round three questions. But tell us about maybe a moment or some of the moments that you've celebrated, like your big breakthrough moments and how they lead up to your North Star vision for PRISM. Yeah, I think for us, every prototype that we've created, we're on prototype number five right now. It's like a mini celebration. Slash yes. like, oh my gosh, like it's here. It's like Love in that. our hands. Everything that we thought of is we're holding it right now. So definitely every in between every prototype that we've created has been a milestone and has been something that we'd really celebrate since it's so unreal, especially for me as a creator and a founder to have all these late nights talking with Helen and uh, a couple of the people that are on our team to really think about all the ideas that we have and really being able to execute that and seeing the finalized mm -hmm. product as a result of all of that labor is such uh -huh. a celebratory moment internally and emotionally. So I would say, yeah, we got our last or most recent prototype three weeks ago. And that was such a moment of like, oh my gosh, it's happening. It's going to get there. It's going to get there. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I remember there's like little moments in between yeah. because I remember that Rachel and I actually custom made our own zipper, like zipper pulls. And basically what we would, what we like saw it go from like a technical sketch and then like somebody <laughs> made it and it finally came to us. And we were like crying over like a tiny yeah. zipper pull and we were like, oh my God, like it's like finally happening. So I guess those things are really rewarding. But also at the same time, like we we're also adapting to a really challenging time that COVID has been and understanding sometimes our labor of love, like of like, one and a half years of really like extensively doing the research for mm. bags and knowing that women aren't going to work like that's also definitely a challenge so we've definitely pivoted in the last two days actually we pivoted to an entirely different product that has a really really fast launch time yeah and like we're gonna eventually like do that launch in like, actually a couple of weeks so it's a very very fast turnaround but it's like one of those like classic moments where you realize you're an entrepreneur is that like you literally have to you know take your like I don't know like the train that you know that like your you know journey on and you're basically just turning it around three being like, okay, here's a new product launch. I guess we're going to do this and we're going to do it in two weeks, right? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to see. <laughs> yeah. So we're definitely doing like a bag or like a smaller version of our bag that's going to be more adaptable to the lives that people are facing in quarantine since the only time I actually ever go out is to go to Trader Joe's. So it's like we, I'm not carrying a big work bag with me. So we definitely ideated and came up with a smaller product that people would be able to carry around and be comfortable with. And it's coming in the next few weeks. <laughs> Thank you so much for all those incredible responses. Um, we'll end with our speed round and so Yay. I'll ask the question and then um, Helen, Rachel, Chloe and I will answer. The first one is 
what is the most essential item that you never leave home without? I guess I'll start. So it's funny because we always ask this question to all the other women that we talk to, especially yeah. because you know we, we do bags, right? So, but for me, if I had to answer, it'd be my keys that has my pepper spray on it. So that's like a powerhouse of things that I carry. Yeah. Oh my gosh, me too. Like I have this key and wallet combination thing that always goes with me. I misplace it all the time, but it's like a two-in-one thing that I cannot leave the house without. Awesome. For me, it's my water bottle. I take it everywhere. Um, for me, I take my bullet journal everywhere uh, because I don't really operate on like an online calendar, which I feel like I should because it's kind of inefficient to do it on paper, but I have to take my bullet journal. I love that. <laughs> I understand you completely. Okay, question two. What is a club or an activity in college that you didn't join, but you wish you had been a part of? For me, I was such an individualist. So I really wish I had done more about joining like a fraternity of some sort, like a business frat or like a sorority of some sort, but never got around to doing that since we were so busy on the road doing activism stuff. Yeah, same here. Like I was involved in a couple like student health initiatives, uh, but honestly, like the sex sports club at UCLA seems super cool. And that's something that I probably would have wanted to join. Yeah, sex education is super important. Cool. Awesome. For me, um, I've always really wanted to do comedy sports, so improv. I just feel like that would be so fun. It's not too late. <laughs> My sister does it. I know, I know. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, it's kind of hard over Zoom, but... <laughs> do it, yeah. I think I would want to join like the ultimate Frisbee team. They're really big on <laughs> campus and I'm really unathletic and actually I feel like I'd be terrible, but they seem cool. Maybe, you know, they take yes, me, okay. I could like sit on the bench. <laughs> um, okay, the last question is, can you tell us a secret talent you have? I might be putting myself a little bit on the spot, but I can actually whistle any song the contingency is that I have to know the song. So I cannot whistle a song I don't know. So there's that. <laughs> okay. Give us a show after. And for me, I could I memorize license plates. It's so weird, but I think I'd be highly valuable during a high-speed chase. So there's that. <laughs> what? It's weird. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> you guys are awesome. That is so cool. I can't whistle and I have a bad memory. So, <laughs> but I can always find the spot on like a dog's back that makes them freak out. That's my talent. I love it. That's way more valuable than what I can do. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, I know I asked the question, but I'm trying to think. Um, most of Mimi's talents aren't secret. That's the problem. <laughs> she has a talent everyone knows about. It. <laughs> and she has many. They're great. A party trick, which I guess would be like fun and cool, is I can play the harp. So I, if Ooh. I like could pull out a harp at a party, I could like string that up. I haven't seen you play the harp. Yeah, it's awesome. It's because like, we don't have one here. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> Helen and Mimi should do like a band of like underrated actually i would be the vocalist <laughs> whistler i'd yeah. be happy for that i did i do it that's awesome oh you guys <laughs> this, so was, this was so much fun and you gave amazing answers thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you both for doing this and inviting us it's been such a pleasure and we love sharing our knowledge and you know being guests on the show 
Yeah, and honestly, because you all stand for empowerment as well, like I think it's one of the most important things to also be able to connect with female audiences, especially because we have similar shared experiences and being able to share that is actually where the power comes from. So, you know, love the podcast, love everything y'all do, and I can't wait to listen to the rest of yours. Hey everyone, we loved speaking with Rachel and Helen. Check out Prism at theprismbrand.com or prism.bags on Instagram and sign up to get their flagship bag at 10% off. See you next time.